y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I catch up with my dear friend, Nora Efron Soulmate, and celebrated author Aaron Carlson. Last September, Aaron's second book, Queen Meryl, arrived in bookstores, and in my opinion, it was the perfect book to follow her 2017 debut, All Have What She's Having. Both books celebrate two extraordinary female storytellers, Meryl Streep and Nora Ephron, and both books have prominent spaces on my bookshelves, but it's Queen Meryl who is the star of today's episode, and I highly recommend that you rush out to the bookstore and buy Aaron's brilliant book. With chapter titles like Meryl Goes Nuclear and Meryl the Immortal, this book will likely have you laughing until your sides hurt. But like a gripping performance by Meryl herself, there are definitely moments of surprise and mystery in this book. Did you know that Meryl once mooned the director of The River Wild? Talk about being cheeky. In our short but very delicious chat, Erin and I discuss everything about Meryl Streep. Her 1983 commencement address at Vassar, her alma mater, how and why she brings out the best in her male co-stars, and our top five Meryl films. Oh, and we managed to save some time to talk about Nora at the end, just in case you were worried. As always, Erin and her books bring me so much happiness and joy. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Now gird your loins and get ready for another episode with Erin Carlson. I am here with the incredible, the amazing, the hilarious, the just like love of my life, Nora Efron soulmate, Erin Carlson. How are you today? Well, thank you for the kind intro. Um, I love you too. Thank you for having me on again. I am just so privileged and so honored to have you on here twice. Obviously, your incredible book, um, I'll Have What She's Having. And then we have Queen Meryl, which came out last September. So this is what we're going to really be focusing on today, which I'm so excited about. And as I said, our Nora episode was just so special to me. And I really am excited to talk about... Meryl Streep and to talk about your book Queen Meryl and for those who haven't had a chance to read it or are currently reading it and would love to know more can you just give us a synopsis of what Queen Meryl is about? I wanted to write about Meryl Streep's career and legacy because a lot of people um, in my generation were first introduced to her through Devil Wears Prada. Maybe Jeff becomes her but there's a breadth (laughs) of work that I feel like goes undiscovered by Meryl fans, like a cry in the dark, plenty, really obscure little gems from the 80s, especially in her 80s heyday, that a lot of people don't know about that speak volumes about who this very private and enigmatic woman is. We don't really know Meryl because she hides in her roles and she goes full on Daniel Day-Lewis. But you can learn about her through her art, through her films, and through her characters, which are very complicated, prickly women that sometimes you don't like. (laughs) So I thought that examining her work would be a way to illuminate who she is. And she's really, she's an artist and an activist. So I thought it was a good time to write about Meryl. You know, other people have before, and I am very fortunate to join the canon of Streeper authors. <laughs> I want to talk about as we delve into uh, Queen Meryl. So this book has so much substance. And as you said, 
it's really funny because you don't think about it until literally when you just said it. We don't actually know who Meryl Streep is unless you're like a hardcore fan who really, really follows her closely. You really don't know who she is outside of her projects because she does just absolutely transport herself and just completely takes over the roles that she plays. And I thought it was really funny. I was actually going to comment on this. You just said, you know, she is an activist and she is an artist. And the bit in your book, actually moving further after chapters one and two, when she's giving this commencement address and her father actually said, when you you go up on stage and you win, don't, you know, just don't talk about politics. And she actually to this day is like, I actually disagree because going up there and accepting an award is as much about my performance that people have given me this accolade for as it is to use this platform for a chance to change something for the better, for good. And I would really love really quickly to just kind of talk about when you were doing research for your book, how you kind of noticed that Meryl has really stayed true to this activism throughout her entire career. Isn't that kind of like strange when she, she gave a commencement address, I think in 1983 at Vassar, where she went to school, but you just didn't talk about politics or religion or any of those things. So it was unusual when I read that, that she said no to her dad. She's like, no, I'm going to go up there and talk about nuclear weapons and why they're bad, which was her cause at the time. Because if I were um, her age, I think she was in her mid-20s, I would have listened to my dad. I would have been like, dad, you're right. So it's quite unusual that she always had that um, spark of rebellion. And it just kind of through all the roles that she played in the 80s. And she glommed on the causes, too. She was very against nuclear war. She uh, was just very, very angered about the pay discrepancy between actors and actresses in the late 80s. She gave a fiery speech in 1990 at a Screen Actors Guild event, and she railed against Pretty Woman. She was like, all the good roles go to hookers. And that did not um, make Julia Roberts happy because, look, they were lucky to get roles like that. There were scraps for actresses at the time, but Meryl um, wasn't there to make friends. She's always been concerned about being right more than being liked or right as she sees it. So she has very high principles and that cost her in the early 90s definitely some friendships in Hollywood. But now it's caught up with her. Now people are like, oh, okay. She was right. (laughs) It took 20 years, but now all actresses do that, and she paved the way for them. Yeah, and she's been consistent with her message, really. And I think as well, it's kind of a double-edged sword with Meryl Streep, in my opinion, because, because she was so invested in knowing about the topics at the time and really trying to get a better understanding of how they would affect a person that she was perhaps portraying. She really did her research. She really kind of understood that. But she she stood for those things personally as well. And that was her choice. And that kind of maybe better prepared her for a role. But at the same time, the roles also did the same for her in the sense that it probably ignited that interest in those topics in terms of, you know, if I'm going to portray a woman who's going through a divorce and is trying to battle custody for my child, like she does in Kramer versus Kramer, at that point, you know, she might not have perhaps gone through that, but then it probably got her thinking, right, like, what are the rights of the mother versus the father is really interesting. And it kind of brings me on to the fact that even from a young age, and you write about this, she was a storyteller really from the beginning. And it absolutely doesn't surprise me that she was this precocious little actress 
to be. You know, that doesn't surprise me, but I actually would love to know when you were doing your writing, when you were doing your research of Meryl, what did surprise you when you were writing this about Meryl Streep? I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing her. I didn't know she was fun. I thought she was serious all the time. And I went in there thinking she was very serious, very Daniel Day-Lewis, very method on set. And she's not. She likes to have fun. She would bum a smoke, you know, off the set of the actors on Angels in America. So she had the occasional smoke, which kind of like surprised me. Um, She mooned. She dropped trowel and mooned her director on the set of The River Wild with Kevin Bacon because the director was kind of like aloof and very socially awkward and they were just kind of razzing him. She's fun. She likes to have a good time. Her longtime hair and makeup man, Roy Helland, is a trip and everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah, you got Roy as this larger than life. He's a female impersonator, drag queen. And I was like, okay, Meryl surrounds herself with people who are also um, more, you know, who are more overtly in your face and rebellious. So they must be a reflection of how she feels about herself, even though she's very composed and regal in public. Privately, she's much different. She's opinionated and funny and loud. I actually think that that is surprising. If I had to do like a scorecard of like serious Meryl roles versus like funny, hilarious Meryl roles, I would say that there is probably more ticks in the serious column because we do know her as being this like chameleon of just being able to literally take a script interpret it in the Meryl Streep way and she just delivers these incredible performances she's not doing like slapstick comedy that's not what she's known for but then when you do get a bit of humor it's really delightfully enjoyable because it's something that you're not expecting which I think is really nice and this really brings me on to one of my favorite Meryl Streep films which is Death Becomes Her so I love 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 this film I love it so much I love Every performance in it. Talk about surprises. Bruce Willis in this film. Who would have thunk? Blasted Undertaker. There are so many great lines. Oh my God. So funny. And again, the things I didn't know about Death Becomes Her. So the ending. I'm so glad that they did not go with what they were originally going to have as the ending. That would have been a terrible ending. One of the best lines of that film is the very last line uttered from Goldie Hawn, which is, do you remember where we parked the car? It's hilarious. That's hilarious. Well, the original ending, I think Goldie Hawn was like, you need to rewrite this. So really quickly for everyone, if you haven't seen um, Death Becomes Her, fix that really, really quickly. It is an absolutely phenomenal film. And it is Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn, Isabella Rossellini, biggest crush on Isabella Rossellini in that film, and Meryl Streep. And it's about essentially bitterness between two women who are in love with the same man, Bruce Willis. And essentially, they take a potion from Isabella Rossellini to live forever, basically. But they have to look after their bodies. And they don't necessarily do this. They realize in the irony of all of it that this man that they've been love-hating together separately is the key to them staying alive forever because he is a plastic surgeon, but he's also like an undertaker as well. So there's this fantastic scene at the end where I'm just going to ruin it for everybody, but Bruce Willis dies. Bruce Willis, they're at his funeral. He left them and went on to marry and have kids. And 
as they're leaving the funeral, because obviously they've outlived everybody, as they're leaving the funeral, they literally remove their veils and their skin is like stuck on and oh, they just look awful. And basically they have a can of like touch up paint that they keep in their purse. And Goldie Hawn is fighting with Marilyn is like, I had it, you had it, where is it? It's been left on the steps of the church, right? So they slip on it, fall down the stairs, crack open in a million pieces and then you just see their heads bob like towards each other at the bottom of the stairs and it's goldie and they're like pan face and goldie goes do you remember where we parked the car it is phenomenal i absolutely love it that made the scene that line change yes that would have been that was so much more funny and dark yes than the original where they were going to go to switzerland and be all sad dark and sardonic But when Siskel and Ebert, rest in peace, those two great men, when they reviewed it, they hated it. They thought it was lacking character substance. They thought there was no depth. Why? I don't understand this. Explain this to me. Well, that was an amazing synopsis. Well, it's funny because the film has these themes that resonate today. You know, they're about aging and women afraid of turning 40 and expiring and no longer being of value to society or men and Meryl you know she was turning 40 and she's like this is funny this speaks to something about society this resonates so she and Goldie decided to do the film but nobody liked it It, um, I think the New York Times called it anti-feminist Roger Ebert hated it it was like the first green screen movie too Meryl kind of hated filming it because she's like wait a second this is this is tedious there's so much special effects. I need to like actually react to a human. But she thought the movie, and she was correct, was ahead of its time. Because this is a movie that would absolutely get made today. Like you look back at movies from the early 90s, you're like, no, Forrest Gump would never get made today. This movie would get made today because it still uh, says something about women, aging, and society. A fabulous film. I've actually been to a drag show where someone was portraying Madeline Ashton, and it oh, made it made my life. It was incredible, and she was phenomenal, and I absolutely loved it. But you know what's ironic about this is that that film has actually aged well. Oh my god! That goes back to a nice surprise that Meryl is funny she is so funny and it made me think about and I again I feel like this is kind of like a Marmite love hate film but I love adaptation I love that film and I actually loved this film um, because I love Susan Ortley <laughs> and um, it's kind of timely at the moment because if anybody is following her on Twitter <laughs> you're currently in for a treat because her tweets are off the chart at the moment so please look for Susan Orlean on Twitter get drunk in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. I love you, Susan, if you're listening. Long shot. So yeah, I love this film. It Again, it goes back to in the early 2000s when um, Nicolas Cage was kind of doing those really, really good films. So he did The Weatherman, which I absolutely love with Michael Caine, and he did Adaptation. And it's got Chris Cooper in it. Like, it just has a stellar cast. And it just made me think about something that I've really all along suspected, which is Meryl, through her absolute over-the-top superior acting skills, really does bring out the best in her male co-stars, because I feel as her playing Susan Orlean in that, I just think it's just brilliant. I just was wondering, do you agree with this in terms of the ebb and foil that she has with male co-stars? Absolutely. And on adaptation, um, that was one of Chris Cooper's first big movies where people were like, hey, I like that guy. And he... He's a character actor, but he was um, being dropped into leading man roles 
or these roles that character actors would die to get, you know, sparring with Meryl Streep. But he was quite intense on that set. So Meryl had to take him aside and go, hey, lighten up. And that was part of her character too. But he was intimidated by her and she knew it. She had to lighten the mood and keep it light and do her part to um, just put people at ease because working with Meryl is intimidating, especially if you're an actor who has never done movies before. Her leading men, all of them match her because she forces them to. <laughs> if they're not as talented as her, she'll bring it out of them. She'll create dynamics off screen, off camera to um, kind of amp up the energy during filming. The two characters hate each other, like on the set of Plenty, she and Charles Dance. Their characters were married, hated each other. Charles Dance didn't have that, I wanna say he's a TV actor, he was younger at the time, he wasn't as intense as Meryl, so she had to make him hate her off camera in order to um, get him to have something to react to. And um, the only actor I've seen that can really match her energy without her having to do much is Philip Seymour Hoffman on Doubt. That was her strongest male counterpart. And their scenes together are electric. He's the priest, her nun, um, suspects, uh, has molested a young boy. He thinks she's crazy and she's, you know, out to get him because he's this very charismatic liberal priest in the Bronx. They have this battle of the wits and it's amazing to watch on Doubt, which is one of my favorites as well. I think it's these iconic roles that you'll have different people. Like if, if I were to say to you, what are your top five Meryl Streep films? And then I was to give you my top five, they would possibly have some crossover, but there would be some different ones as well. She plays to the masses, but there are people who have their cult favorites, like you said. I mean, obviously I want to know what your top five is and then we'll go into Devil Wars Prada. But yeah, what, what is your top five Meryl Streep films? They change according to my mood. Well, I'd have to go with the classic. The Devil Wears Prada is number one. Uh, number two, The River Wild, her first and last action film, which I saw with my mother in the early 90s. Number three, why do I keep thinking about this? I always go back to Silkwood, <laughs> where she plays um, Karen a Silkwood. Karen. Yeah, a good Karen. Four, Ricky and the Flash, which was written by Diablo Cody, and she plays like an aging rocker, and she does a really, oh, she learned the guitar in like two seconds. And um, five, there's just so many. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Cry in the Dark, her um, true crime thriller. I love it, I love it. Everyone see that movie. And these are in no particular order, I'm just listing. So um, Death Becomes Her, Devil Wears Prada, It's Complicated, I, I love Nancy Myers. And then I would say Adaptation. Seriously, I need to like shuffle my list. But then, add. but Postcards on the Edge is great as well because you've got Shirley MacLaine. That's such a great film as well. So like, I, I think it's hard to have a top five Meryl because it, it is. It's like you said, there's just so much good stuff. But I want to talk about Devil Wears Prada because something in your book really resonated with me and just kind of made me be like, what the actual fuck is this person talking about? So essentially, to set it up for everyone, so obviously Miranda Priestly is like this, and I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it, this ball-busting, tough head of this huge women's magazines. And for anyone who hasn't read the Devil Wars Prada book, the two assistants are American, and uh, Miranda Priestly is British, which is very interesting. So essentially, in your book, you talk about the fact that Meryl said on an NPR interview that 
men came up to her when she took that role and actually said, I can empathize with this person because I've been there. I've had that boss. I've had that job. Why does it take that to empathize? Why don't you empathize with Karen Silkwood? Why don't you empathize with, you know, all these different women that she has played? But I would love your thoughts on it. Yeah, because um, she's an icy capitalist who makes tough decisions. And who is at the top of capitalist structures? It's white men. And here's this woman who is making these tough decisions and uh, not giving a shit about being liked. But yet she's, nobody understands her. Nobody understands the sacrifices she's made for the corporate good. But they do. Men, men felt, I think Meryl said, men felt Miranda through their body. Men have never been asked because they've never had to feel other characters um, through their bodies, other female characters. Meanwhile, we identify with Indiana Jones. We identify with Tom Hanks in his movies. So Miranda Priestly, ironically, out of 70 plus movies that Meryl has done, that's the only character they feel in their bodies. We could literally have a whole episode of the things I don't understand. But I think for me, especially because you read ferociously like I do as well, but if I'm reading a story that is powerful and the writing is amazing and it's just literally taking my breath away. I'm going to empathize. I'm going to want to relate. I'm going to want to know more about it. It's just absolutely bonkers to me. They otherize us. In Her Shoes is actually fucking amazing. And the only critic who understood that about the movie adaptation was ironically Roger Ebert. It's a movie about literacy and finding yourself. And more men should expose themselves to um, different voices. So when Little Women came out, Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women, which is incredible, it was the fact that when I was sat having a conversation with some male colleagues of mine, and I said, you know, what films are you going to go see? And I suggested Little Women, and they're like, oh, no, that's not a film for me. Didn't we see 1917? (laughs) Oh, that's not a film for me. Oh, that's a movie about war. Yeah. And like a very important war. And we don't take ourselves out of that equation fills me with rage. So going back to your first book that I love so much on a a woman who, even though she has technically passed away, I refuse to refer to her in the past tense as I will never do. So you know how much I hold a candle to Nora. I know how much you hold a candle to Nora. There's so many people out there who just absolutely time in and time out love her books, love her films. So I just want to know, lastly, before we go, I am kind of slightly terrified that there will come a time in my lifetime, in our lifetime, that a generation will not know who Nora Ephron is, not know how amazing she is, not know why we literally have a lot of things that we have because of her. And I just wanted to get your opinion on how we can, other than buying millions of copies of your book, rereading it a million times, talking about her constantly as we do, but what can we do to keep Nora always alive? I have to know. Oh, well, the most important thing she ever wrote was, and I keep always going back to this, was her 1996 commencement address at Wellesley College. It's all girls college. And I just feel like they should teach that speech in every classroom. It's a powerful speech to young women and they should never forget that these second wave feminists that might not know everything helped pave the way for them. And they should also be reminded of how much things haven't changed and how they still have the power to change it. And uh, women like Nora Ephron were um, there fighting for them even before they were born. 
and her words resonate today. It's online, Google Nora's 1996 commencement address. It's amazing. I often think as my mind goes to Nora on a regular basis, just how her mother, Phoebe, was also just a very fantastic feminist ahead of her time. And so I think that yeah. that Nora was just going to, like the apple in this case doesn't fall far from the tree in, in the best way. And that her essays are amazing. In hindsight, some of her essays might seem anti-feminist. She wrote one about how women aren't funny, kind of piggybacking on this horrible essay that Christopher Hitchens wrote about how, how women aren't funny. But if you really read it, you'll see what she's trying to say is that women felt like they couldn't be funny. They were just there to draw out interesting things in conversation from men at the dinner table, but they didn't speak up themselves. That's what she was talking about. So read Nora's essays through that lens. Read everything that she's ever written. <laughs> Google and watch every video that she's ever. I'll leave everyone with a hilarious Nora moment. So she is at a Mike Nichols Lifetime Achievement Dinner, and it's being obviously filmed for people to watch. I think it actually was Mike Nichols AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. And she's giving a toast to him. And she basically said that the best time that they had together was when they were in Shirley, New York, and they were going to speak at a temple. And she said, and this is classic Nora humor, she said, how often do you get to speak at the Shirley Temple? And what I would say before we go is that Aaron's two books, whether it's I'll Have What She's Having, which is a beautiful, beautiful tribute to Nora Ephron's uh, three iconic films, uh, You've Got Mail, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, and When Harry Met Sally, and also Queen Meryl that came out last September. Both of them are phenomenal. Aaron is phenomenal. I highly recommend, even though this episode was short but sweet, just like Erin, although she's not particularly short, so I would just say that she's really she's really sweet. How tall are you, actually, by the way? Um, I'm 5'5". Five five. I okay. grew an inch. I grew an inch um, in the past five years or so. Oh, fantastic! Five four. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm gl- I'm glad that you have achieved greater heights through. And maybe I was always <laughs> five five, and my mom measured me wrong. I asked the driver's license lady to give me five two when I went in to get. I think I may be 5'1", so she gave me 5'2". So thanks, driver's license lady. That is a perfect way to end it. Um, read both of Erin's books. She's phenomenal. Um, you can follow her on social media. She's on Instagram and Twitter. Highly recommend it. And I'll obviously put links in the episode description to how to buy both of her books. They're both available in the UK. Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. And, you know, I'm always around if you want to talk about books, pop culture, doesn't have to be Nora or Meryl, but I'm happy to plug my work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.